Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, September the 19th, 2021. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. Well, let's have some fun tonight. I know that that's hard to fathom here as, look, as we sit here, Mets are about to take on the Phillies in the final of a three-game set. Can't tell you how disappointed I am in this team after we had a great show on Monday, a very emotional Subway Series weekend. I know it was a long shot for this team to play meaningful postseason uh, you know, games that meant something to get into the postseason you know, I had mentioned last, you know, earlier in the week how with all that was going on in the wild card and how the Braves schedule and having the Phillies in the mix, I was a little bit tempered in my expectation about this team competing. But, I mean, I'm not going to get too much into them tonight because there's plenty to talk about, a lot to talk about uh, regarding this team that will have a new president of baseball operations, the fourth offseason in five years where there's going to be an extensive overhaul of some facet of either the field or the front office. I mean, the owner getting into the the sauce with the media. And, uh, you know, I, I really want to get into that. But I thought because uh, the 30 for 30, Once Upon a Time in Queens, came out this week, I thought it was more enjoyable to talk about that because we have two weeks before the season's out to get into next steps about this Mets team. Uh, plenty to talk about with the, this Mets team, uh, more than enough. But I'll be honest, as I was, uh, you know, as I heard that this was coming out for the last couple of months, I wasn't that all excited about Once Upon a Time in Queens. Anybody who's a longtime Mets fan knows the old VHS, a year to remember. That's the best 86 Mets look back that's out there. The best. Uh, well done for that time. Has all the highlights you need. I mean, we've had the 2006 reunion, the 2016 reunion. We had Doug Sisk on this show. I've spoken to Danny Heat. Uh, just a couple of years ago, if you were listening to this show, I had a replay of my first ever interview with a former Met on uh, the old 1240 AM WGBB. Gary Carter, the late Gary Carter, came on the show. We could go on and on and on. We've talked about 86 in so many different ways, and I'm sure... You have relived it, whether you were alive at that time and were watching it uh, as a fan or were looking back as a Mets fan who wasn't around. You probably relived it more than you really want to. 
And in some ways, you've heard Keith Hernandez talk about it. I think even the players, to a certain extent, are ready to move on. I know Keith has said it's time for the next team to win, and you almost had that with the Piazza Mets in 2000, and then the David Wright, Jose Reyes, Carlos Beltran Mets in 06, and they got to the World Series with the uh, three young pitchers and Terry Collins and David Wright's last hurrah in 2015. So you've had some opportunities to erase 1986, but every time they get close, something has happened. And, and 86, in a way, has almost become this yoke around the organization's neck. And and I wasn't in the mood to you know look at something and say, yeah, do I really want to relive something I know about? Now, as I'm looking on Twitter the night of part one, all transparency, I recorded the series. I was going to watch it. But I wasn't sure I was going to do a lot of talking about it on this program. So I recorded it, and I'm looking at the comments on Twitter. I'm like, wow, people are really enjoying it. And then the following day, a Mets fan that I know came to me and goes, did you watch it? And I said, watch what? He goes, once upon a time in Queens. I said, no, I haven't watched it yet. He goes, oh, it's great. I mean, actively going and saying, did you watch it? Now, these are all contemporary Mets fans that live through the times I became a Mets fan because of 1986 because of the 1986 postseason because I saw the excitement around the city the excitement my family my father was a Mets fan I watched how excited he was and that was my introduction to baseball as a nine-year-old I was not really a baseball fan or a sports fan before that and away you go now here you are all these years 40 you know 30 something years later I'm here doing this so I can't give you personal connections to 86 other than that's how my fandom started. But I will say this, and I have a special guest that I think really embodies kind of anything you're going to need to know about the 86 Mets. you got Eric Sherman, author Eric Sherman. Now, Eric has been on the show before. He recently wrote a book a couple of years ago about Davey Johnson, Davey Johnson, uh, my Wild Ride in Baseball and Beyond. He wrote a book with Art Shamsky after the miracle about the 69 Mets. Wrote a book, King of Queens, which was about the 86 Mets. And also wrote a book with Mookie Wilson. So here's a guy that knows the manager pretty well. He knows one of the key players of the 86 team well. Wrote about the 86 team. And guess what? This year came out with a book called Two Sides of Glory, which looked at the other side of the 86 World Series, which nobody's ever talked about, the Red Sox and the heartbreak that's there. I mean, if you look at that entire postseason, the storylines that came out of that postseason, Mike Scott and the Astros, and before the Astros of recent years, that might have been the best shot the Astros had at winning a World Series was that 86 team. Uh, Donnie Moore, the late Donnie Moore, and how his life took a spiral after giving up that home run to Dave Henderson. Remember, the Red Sox were pretty much dead and buried. That nearly was a New York-Anaheim World Series. Think about that. That was pretty close. The Angels were a pretty good team that year. And Cowboy Gene Autry was trying to get his championship. Of course, you have then the Mets. The Mets who were, you know, hadn't won since 1969, were bad for so long. And away you go. So you have so many stories. And I think watching that four-part series and thinking back to the old VHS, a year to remember, I think more and more, I think we've gotten away from the storytelling aspect of baseball. We have so much about stats and process 
and organization building. And I am guilty of that on this show as much as everybody else because that's what the fan wants to hear. That's what you guys want to hear. But I think one of the most fun parts about doing radio is storytelling. Now, you and I both know as years go on, and you even saw that in the documentary with Kevin Mitchell and his uh, the, the, the legend that he beheaded a cat, that not all stories are actually real. Everybody kind of takes a piece of a story and hands it down year after year after year, and they become lionized to a certain degree. Recently, I, and, and it's a great podcast, and you guys really should subscribe to it if you haven't, and you'll learn a lot about baseball and listen to some great stories and some uh, you know Hall of Famers and really good players talk about the game, the Brett Boone Podcast. John Olrood was on that podcast talking about how this whole story about Ricky Henderson not knowing that he was the guy with the helmet, uh, how that became baseball lore or baseball legend. So I really think we've gotten away from it, and I hope and I really took away is that that's what attracted me to radio, to doing this, was interviewing former players, the storytelling. And I know that I am anti-narrative because you see how the narratives in today's journalism are used as a weapon to spin public opinion to potentially harm the topic or gaslight a fan base we've, we've talked about that a lot and you even saw in the documentary and I don't know if it was Chuck D that said it or Greg Prince or maybe Eric Sherman I can't remember and by the way there was a lot of former guests of the Talking Mets podcast on there if you didn't notice so we've done a we've done a pretty good job over the years getting good guests but it was said that the, nobody really wants to see the Mets get good because the only time that everyone's happy with the Mets is when they're in that lovable loser, LOL, little lane. And I think this 86 Mets team not only blew that lane away, but became the bullies and, and had that chip on their shoulder. And I think that is a real component of potentially this year's team that was missing. I think there was a lot of good, and this team still has good bones, even though they've disappointed me a great deal. But I think they missed that chip on their shoulder. And they almost, when they got hit, and they got hit a lot this year with Thunderbolts, including the ultimate Thunderbolt, which uh, blew the house down and burnt the house down, and Jacob deGrom going down. It's almost like uh, losing Samson, losing his hair. I think that really played a lot into it. But I don't know if this team ever developed that chip on their shoulder, that confidence, and you certainly even looked at some of the leadership that that team had. Now, certainly the Mets have Lindor, but he's been in and out of the lineup. But they don't have a Hernandez. They don't have a Cotter. They don't have that veterans that I think that have that level of success. And and maybe that's something the Mets have to look into this offseason. But that's another story for another day. But I really think that the storytelling aspect really brought... You know, it's why I love the game. And it's I think sometimes what's missing, and I think my commitment, is that maybe we try to do more of that responsibly in a real way here. The other takeaway, if you didn't, and you've heard this a thousand times from me, is how this is a great fan base. This is now, after all these years, you know, 1986, they were only, what, 25 years old, the Mets? They were still a baby franchise, which is crazy to think about it. Here I am growing up, I fall in love with the Mets after 86. They're still kind of new. The Marlins came out in 1992, what, 2002, you know, the Marlins were, you know, 25 years old recently, and, you know, you still kind of sometimes figure them as, well, they haven't been around that long. And here are the Mets now, they're well over, what, 50 years now, they've been well over, almost 60 years in the league, and they're not that 
that little you know baby franchise anymore. They are not an iconic franchise, I think, in terms of championships, but they're in that pantheon of New York sports lore where they're a love beloved franchise. And there is a toxic portion to this fan base. There's no doubt about it. And I've talked about it and it drives me bananas. But there's a lot of good fans. And there's this underbelly of the fans that is so hungry for winning. They're so hungry to go out to City Field and, you know, make that place shake like they did in 2015, like they did in the wild card game in 2016. You know, I remember, and I've said this and we talked about this on this program about how. I remember Shea Stadium being in the upper deck and how it would shake during those 2000 playoffs. I remember the the love affair this fan base had with the 06 team. It's a fan base that wants to love this team, and it's frustrated. And sometimes that frustration comes out in a bad way and creates a, a, a void between the fans and the players, and you saw that a couple of weeks back. But I do know that these fans want to see a winner. They love this team. They're loyal to this team. And and it's a it's a good fan base. There's not a it's not every team has good fan bases. Not every team has what the New York Mets have. And I continue to go and I'll say this again and we'll see how the you know who takes the challenge here. Because this team is cir- is just like the Red Sox circa two thousand, a team that has good bones, can't seem to get it together, has this legacy of failure hanging over their head. Certainly the Red Sox had a much longer run of failure than this Mets team uh, had. You know, this Mets team had has has been to m- multiple pennants. Red Sox after 86, you know, won a couple of divisions, but that was it. You know, it was, you know, 80-something years before they won a World Series. The Mets aren't there yet, but, you know, talk to me in 30 years, right, if I'm still doing this? Oh, good Lord, if it's still 30 years from now, we're in trouble. But um, it's going to take a special person to erase 86 and move on. The The 86 guys want to pass the baton on. Keith has talked about that. I think this was kind of there, and I thought 2016 was that last hurrah, but I firmly believe this 30 for 30 is it puts the cap on those guys. They were honest. They came out. They, they, they told stories. Most I've heard. Some you may not have. And I think it was a chance to really lay it all out and finally put... Whatever stories, whatever honoring of 86 that needs to happen, put it out there. And I think this 30 for 30 did it. And I think there's, it looks like there might be some cutting room floor clips that'll come out. They probably could have done a little bit more to talk about the crash because they glazed through it. it was, the Mets not winning after 86 was more than just no Knight, no Mitchell. That was a part of it. There was a lot more to that. And I think, you know, giving it 10 minutes, and of course I know for the purposes of part four that's probably all ESPN was going to give them but uh, I think they could have did a little bit more with that but I think Chuck D the rapper said it best it was like a trilogy 84 85 86 you heard that me saying how 97 to 2000 was like a Netflix series when I had Piazza on the show and I think you could even talk about you know similar how Star Wars had the first three and then the next three you could talk about 87 88 89 into the early 1990 season when Buddy Harrelson took over as the other flip side of this, but that's another story for another day. So uh, I, if you haven't watched it yet, I certainly recommend that you watch Once Upon a Time in Queens. And let's just take a break from the disappointment of 2021. There's plenty of time to talk about what what happens next. There's plenty of times to talk about what went wrong, where the Mets should go. We could tar and feather people every day of the week, twice on Sunday. 
But right now, I want to have you have some enjoyment. I know it's been a tough baseball week after that emotional Subway Series 9-11 weekend. It's a tough baseball week. So let me give you some positive storytelling as we take a quick break. And when I come back, Eric Sherman, author of the book King of Queens, among others, you saw him in the 30 for 30 documentary, Once Upon a Time in Queens. He's currently got a book about the Red Sox and their side of 1986. He's going to actually be in Boston as the Mets travel to face the Red Sox this week, signing books and doing his thing. So a lot of fun still to come here on this latest edition of the Talking Mets podcast. The podcast, blah. The Mets may be out of it. The magic number or the tragic number is dwindling down, but we're still here going strong on the Talking Mets podcast. Let's take a quick break. Eric Sherman, right after this. In the 70s, being a Mets fan was not the happiest of times. It was kind of like, who are the Mets? Managers came and went, players came and went, but a core was being built. People talk about 86, but it was like a trilogy, man. 84, 85, and 86. We're better. Now we're going to dominate. The fan base and the city had been whipped up into a frenzy. You didn't know all this weird stuff was bubbling underneath. Mets developed a bullying, attention-grabbing reputation. The alcohol was flowing. Let's put it this way. We put the S in speed. Why should I worry about it? These guys are partying and they're winning also. That seemed like the win-win to me. If you were from Queens, you were on top of the world. Their behavior was disgusting, but winning cures a lot of sins. They'd won 108 games. What can go wrong? Once Upon a Time in Queens, September 14th and 15th at 8 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. We're back and joining me, old friend of the show. We had him on a couple of years ago. Wow, boy, does time fly. He was here when he had his book about Davy Johnson out. If you guys watch Once Upon a Time in Queens, he was definitely a big part of it. He has a book, King of Queens, his book about the 86 Mets, Eric Sherman. Eric, I got to tell you, welcome to the program. I wasn't sure, and I'll be all truthful to the audience. I recorded the 30 for 30 because I'm like, do I really need to make time for another 86 Mets documentary? And even my wife looks at me, she goes, do you got to watch more about the 86 Mets? I'm glad I recorded it. I spent four hours this weekend watching it, uh, thereabouts. A uh, tremendous look back and some great content, and I know you were a part of it. So welcome to the program, and were you skeptical too, like I, that, well, did we really need the 86 Mets again when you heard about this? Um, a little bit, um, just just because, I mean, just for myself, I've, I've written three 86 Mets-related books, you know, Kings of Queens, uh, the Davy Johnson autobiography, and the Mookie Wilson autobiography. I was co- co-author of both of those and and aside from that, you know, you had, you know, Jeff Perlman's outstanding book, um, The Bad Guys Won. Um, you know, so this is, I, I thought it was covered. However, um, Nick Davis, you know, he's one of the, the leading documentarists in the country. And I knew that he would do a great job on it. I knew that he was a Mets fan. And... I knew if anyone could give it the true ESPN 30 for 30 true treatment, it would be him. And um, yeah, I mean, did I, did I learn a lot from it that I didn't know? Um, not much, but, but, but it was just seeing it visually and seeing the interviews um, and seeing the footage 
um, like what he had, uh, you know, with Daryl Strawberry and Keith Hernandez as a little leaguer. Um, that I thought, you know, I, I thought delivering this content visually um, was just outstanding. And I think Nick Davis um, really went above and beyond and um, it, it's outstanding. And I, I know I'm going to watch it again, again and again. Um, sure. Not just because I'm in it, but because um, it, it was just so well done. And I, I think not just Mets fans, but baseball fans, um, you know, it left them wanting more. Um, and I love the way he tied everything together at the end and how, you know, it was really a one-year dynasty and really could have been so much more. Yeah, it's funny you, you went there because – as I'm watching it, I think there were two things that were brought up that I think are very pertinent. One, um, the Mets, and even today, I think from a media perspective, and I don't know if it was Chuck D that said this or Greg Prince or you, so forgive me. Everybody wants them to be like, you know, have your little thing, but we want, you're cool to be lovable losers. You're good to be laugh out loud at. Once you get good, uh, that's not... And I, I heard that, and I was like, that's exactly what I've been saying for a long time. Because when the Mets get good, there is a, a tendency to create, and they walk into a lot of this drama. The second thing, and I'd like you to touch on, is that 84, 85, 86 was a trilogy. And then I almost feel like 87, 88, 89 into 90, it was almost like Star Wars. You have the original Star Wars, and maybe not the prequel, but you have that. So I don't think there'll be a 30 for 30 about the demise, and I know they touched on it. But there was so much more. I think the only criticism, and it's not uh, anything more than because of time. I, I became a Mets fan because of 86. I mean, I was a, that's kind of my baseball introduction. So I'm not a guy they should be talking to because I didn't live through the 70s. I'm 44. I was too young. But I certainly could speak to, especially after talking to a lot of these guys, 87 to 90. I thought that other part. But both of those things rung true to me. The fact that people don't like when the Mets are too good because they're getting out of their narrative. And how I think that it was more that could have been said about why they collapsed um, after the fact, understanding the time constraints. And maybe there was, uh, and maybe ESPN said, look, you know, Nick, you know, you've got to cut this down. And I think, I think that did happen. Um, you know, I have to presume if, if Nick had done six hours and they had to cut it down to four, um, I would think, I would assume that a lot of what you're talking about was cut out. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I'm 55 years old. And to me, the greatest year to be a Mets fan, I mean, I wasn't around in 69. I'm sure that was the best. I was three. I did write a book on, on that team with Art, Art Chamsky. Um, so I understand the magic of 69 and I get what you're saying about 86, but to me in my lifetime, the most fun to be a Mets fan was 1984. And I always said like, it felt to me like, again, I was three years old in 69, but the summer of 84, I remember telling myself I was 18 and I'm like, this is what it must've felt like in 69 because up until 69, they were the lovable losers. They only had one season when they weren't in last place from 62 through 68. And I think it was by a half a game. They were in ninth place. Um, 
this previous to 84, they were in the dark ages for seven years. Um, after they traded Seaver away and Kingman in the summer of 77, nothing good was happening between 77 and 83. I mean, they were pretty bad. 83, you know, they lost over 90 games, but you could kind of see they weren't losing as badly once they got Keith Hernandez and Daryl Strawberry, but they were still, you know, a pretty bad team. But 84 came out of nowhere. You know, you know, Doc Gooden burst on the scene and Ron Darling and, um, you know, Walterell had a good year. Um, you know, they were putting things together and won um, 90 games. And they, you could tell, I mean, they, if, it was, if the Cubs didn't make that trade for Rick Sutcliffe, um, the Mets would have won that division. Yep. And it just came out of nowhere, and it was so exciting. Um, that, to me, was the most fun year. And um, Keith Hernandez agreed with me. He said, yeah, that was the most fun year because nobody saw it coming. Interesting. Uh, Eric Sherman, if you guys don't know Eric, you should. Buy Eric Sherman on Twitter. Eric Sherman, baseball, tons of books. Uh, you know, Even if you're not a Mets fan, he's got a book about Steve Blass, a book about Glenn Burke. Uh, Mookie Wilson, Davey Johnson, he mentioned earlier the 69 book with Art Chamsky, King of Queens, and the other side, of, two sides of glory. We'll get into that because I think there's an interesting component to this documentary as well. I'm going to tell you one of the things that um, struck me as I go back to the baseball reference page. In an era where my, I'm not a big analytics guy, but you have to put it into your component of assessing teams because that's all that we have. We're not in the clubhouse anymore. Um, and that's how uh, teams are assessed. Analytically, the 86 Mets don't necessarily jump at you. Look at the guys in the bullpen. They don't strike anybody out. The guys in the rotation, even Doc, and you, it's touched about it in the documentary, Doc dropped off. Whether that was, and I've spoken to Doc on this program, he mentioned expectations, whether it was the off-the-field demons that he had. It's probably a combination of all. Offensively, they got on base. They were timely. They didn't hit a ton of home runs. Um they, they play pretty good defense. There's nobody, even Gary Carter, who may have been the MVP that year, I would say Keith Hernandez's numbers jump up at you as elite, but everybody else was really good. And that's the amazing part. 108 wins, really, really good. Everybody playing really good, knowing their roles. It's the antithesis of what you expect from a championship team today, which is dominance. Everybody's trying to have the perfect team, the perfect season the perfect bullpen. And sometimes it's just guys knowing their roles, playing to the best of their capabilities. And maybe at the end of the day, baseball reference won't be sexy. There won't be a lot of bold in baseball reference. You know what I'm talking about? But they come together. And I think that's the underreported thing. The Mets were really good in the 80s. I lived through some of it. But I don't think you could say they were the most talented or dominant team every year at every position. Um, I think everybody kind of knew exactly their role and where they needed to be. As you look back, I know that's heresy in a little way, but no, no, I, I, I think it's accurate. Um, you know, I was, I was having lunch with Mookie a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about this. Um, we were talking about the Angels, how you know they have the two best players on the planet, you know, Tani and Trout. And I know Trout's been injured a lot this year, but you know, you know, this is a team. People ask, well, they have the two best players on the planet. You know, why? 
aren't they better? Why aren't they even 500? And, you know, one of the things that Mookie said was, well, like take our 86 team, you know, it was, it was, I think that year is 24 guys. You know, it was 24 guys coming together and everyone knew their role. You know, they had the platoon system at four different positions, just like the 69 Mets did. And everyone contributed, everybody knew their role. And I think Davey Johnson doesn't get enough credit for that, um, you know, for helping put that unit together. He knew what they needed. They, you know, I'll give you an example. Wally Backman, we all love Wally, but, you know, he, he didn't hit left-handers that well for a switch hitter. So, you know, Davey said to Frank Cashin, you know, go out and get me Tim Tuffle. And they got him. Uh, they needed, you know, someone at third um, to compliment Hojo. And they, they go out and they get the right-handed hitting Ray Knight. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll just say this. Like you touched on, you know, what happened after 86. And the documentary spells it out, just like I did it in my book, Kings of Queens. You know, they, um, they lost really the heart and soul of the enforcer aspect of that team in letting Kevin Mitchell and Ray Knight get away. Um, well, not just get away, they, they traded Kevin Mitchell. I, I think Frank Cashin was, you know, was fearful that the team could implode. Um, he didn't really know enough about uh, Kevin Mitchell and actually what a positive influence he, he was Right. Um, the other guys, um, you know, he had it all, all, all wrong as far as, you know, thinking Kevin Mitchell was a thug and that he might bring, you know, the other young black stars, um, Daryl Strawberry and Dwight Gooden down. Um, and with Ray Knight, he completely underestimated the leadership that he brought to that team and um, the dynamic of that Mets team completely changed in 87. Um, personally, I think you look back and the 88 team might've been even more solid than the 86 team. Sure. I agree. From a talent perspective, you throw David Cohn in there, you, you know, you have a Howard Johnson 30, you know, 30, 30 guy yep. who had really become an all-star by that point. And, um, but they didn't have that, um, that just winner take all, you know, they, they just didn't have that, that, that fierceness um, that the 86 team had. Yeah. And you, you wrote about two guys that are in the documentary. You mentioned one now, and I, here's what I always say about Mookie. Mookie Wilson today would be highly criticized by the media and by the fan base. He swung wildly, yep. didn't walk, um, had to have a high batting average on balls in play to be successful. Wasn't bad defensively. Was more speed that made up for his defense. Um, he might not have even made it to 86 in today's game because fans would have looked at him as a carnival aspect of a bad team, a guy with speed, a guy that kind of excited you. But really, you know, Lenny Dykstra, from all the principles that people look at today, Lenny Dykstra would be, other than the fact that he physically didn't look like a big-time ball player, the better player. He walked, he had power, he had a great defense. 
But Mookie, uh, when he went down with the injury in spring training, I didn't realize how that impacted the team and how they felt how important he was. You know Mookie. You wrote a book with him. Uh, do you agree with that? Because I can tell you, I think Mookie would be a, a media poster child of he is exactly what you don't want on a team. But he was so important to that group. Well, in today's game, some of your points are valid, you know, because now it's about getting on base. Um, it's it's about on base percentage and and the stolen base, you know, which was very much a part of the game in the 80s uh, has 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 really disappeared, um, I think. Uh, is it Marte? I could be, be wrong. Starling Marte. I mean, who, who's ever leading? See, I don't even know. But who's ever leading the majors in stolen bases, I think, has around 40. You know, in the 80s, you had, you had Vince Coleman, you had Ricky Henderson. I mean, you had guys with over 100 stolen bases. Um, no, I, I disagree a little bit in that. Well, so the points that I just made, I agree with. Um, but he, he would have been a great St. Louis Cardinal because that was the style of play that they had. Um, but on the Mets, he just brought in electricity. Um, he had been with them since 1980. So there was a leadership. He had been there the whole time through the transformation. Um, players really looked up to him. I mean, you, know, you ask Ron, Ron Darling, what Mookie Wilson meant to that team. And he'll tell you that, you know, he was the most respected guy on the bench. Um, so um, in today's game, yeah, I, you know, they're looking for guys to take pitches and, and, you know, Mookie's favorite phrase was uh, thou shall not pass. Right. Um, right. So uh, yeah, but he, he was a dy- dynamic player, you know, very good defensively. Um, and he brought elements to the game that, are largely have largely disappeared from today's game. We finally got the proof that Mike Scott scuffed the ball. We have it. Ed Lynch showed it. I'll tell you a funny story. I asked Terry Poole. Remember Terry Poole from the Astros sure. many years ago, probably going back to 2007, 2008. I don't know why I had him on my show. He was involved in something. And I said, Terry, I said, did Mike Scott scuff the ball? And he just laughed. He said, that's another story for another day. Nobody wants to, but you have the proof, but the point there is both Houston and you just wrote a book about the Red Sox. Those were really good teams. Mets were dominant. Mets were good. But when you look at the National League, the only team that probably could have beaten them in a seven-game series was the team they faced. I mean, think about it. You're facing Mike Scott, career year, scuffing the ball. The things that Spider Tack and Pelican Grip did do, he was doing. So everything they're doing today, Mike Scott's doing, driving the Mets crazy. Hall of Famer and Nolan Ryan. This crafty lefty the Mets could never hit and Bob Neffer. Yeah. Um, the only thing you can probably criticize about that team was the bullpen because they had Charlie Kerfeld and Dave Smith, which could have been kerosene on a fire to the Mets, but solid relievers nonetheless. I think if anybody who wasn't around, the takeaway is they have no idea how tough those series were. This was not a cakewalk for these teams. And it, it brought back how close this thing was to being a footnote of disappointment in Mets history. And who knows what changes? Who knows if they try to come back and maybe they win back-to-back because they lost 80s. It's interesting how history changes if they lose that stuff. Wow. So that's kind of interesting. I mean, I never really thought of that, you know, how that would have affected their history. So 
69 may have been the only world championship sure that they now won it and this is like the know, new york rangers now 1940 1940 right yeah exactly um so um yeah i think if there's a seventh game they don't beat scott um even though some of the guys on the 86 Mets i talked to said you know what he was like freddy krueger that's how bobby ohita described it <laughs> um but you know they say we would have found a way much like they found a way in game six, you know, to, sure. to battle back in that ninth inning. They were losing three nothing, um, three nothing early. Um, they they, they score, scored, uh, I think, three in the first off of Ojeda. And Ojeda's arm was just hanging. And somehow he bat- battled through. And it was just an epic game. Right. And, you know, in 16 innings. And, um, you know, they lose that game. I think that they do lose game seven I, I just think that Scott was so inside their heads and and you know the umpires were allowing it to happen with the scuff balls uh the league president was allowing it to to happen I mean it's so here we go we have a ball in front of us from Ed Hearn what 17. 40 years later and I'm looking at him like that's the scuff that nobody could figure out I mean come on and come on and, and I guess he did it after that 87 because he was a good pitcher who ultimately hurt, I think he hurt his shoulder a few years later, Scott, and that you can't scuff your way out of a bad shoulder. But right. I'm looking at that ball, unless somebody did something to it, which Ed Hearn I've spoken to, he wouldn't do that. Um, wow, that's a lot of proof. And here we are worried about spider attack? Jeez. I think they had 17 balls that they collected, you know, that Mets collected um, in, was it game four uh, that Scott pitched again at Shea Stadium? Um, but yeah, they had all the proof in the world. They took it to the league office and they're like, well, we're not going to reverse the results of those games. They've been played and it's up to pretty much the umpires to resolve any issues going on during the game. So, but I'm, I've always been curious though, Mike, you know, what would have happened in game seven if the umpires would have been proactive in that game regarding the scuffing, it was was going to be played at the Astrodome. Sure. Um, So had they kicked Mike Scott out, you know, the place would have gone nuts. But Eric, think about it. The Mets were not liked. Like I'm watching these, these, this, this documentary, my wife, and she's like, why are the curtain calls a big deal? She's thinking about today's game. And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, and it drives me, Eric, what goes on today with the hats and the chains and I'm glad they got rid of the home run horse, the Mets with Alonzo. I hate it to me. That's amateur. Like you want to do a dance, you want to go. And even what happened with Stanton and Lindor last week, it drives me nuts. And I'm looking at what people hated about the Mets, which is just a pump. I'm like, and it sounded like even Hernandez listening to him talk, wasn't crazy about it either. That doesn't surprise me. But, um, you know, think about it. If the other teams hate the Mets, what makes you think the umpires don't hate the Mets? And Peter Uberoff, not exactly a Hernandez fan, you know, and the whole thing. So, you know, in a lot of ways, it truly could have been us against the world. And think back to the comment made. When the Mets are good, they get out of their lane. The narrative has been from the day that Casey Stengel took over. We want you to be losers. If you get good, we want you to be Lucy with the football and that's something that they're battling a little bit today, I think. I think that, that people don't understand how pervasive that is. Even if it's not overt, it's an, you know, an underlying thing. And it's going to take a very big person to overcome that. I've said this. 
and you being on the other side, having interviewed Red Sox components, the Mets right now are how the Red Sox were in 2000. The yes. fan base, the weight on the shoulder, and it's going to take a special group to exercise 86. 86 is the ghost in the room. Not necessarily Piazza and company who, you know, it was a different time. And I've talked to Mike about this, you know, not 06, I think, and the collapse. I think that's the ghost in the room, this 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 chain. Why can't we get that next title? And it's going to take a special group to do it in the front office as well as on the field. Well, I think they have the right owner. Uh, I that's still for do. sure. I think they have a, a great owner and who really cares. He's a fan um, since 1962, since the beginning. He has the deep pockets, and he's going to do what's necessary to put a winner at City Field. And I, I think they'll accomplish it. You know, when DeGrom went down this year, it was it was devastating. And you knew it. Heart ripped out you, the heart and soul of this team. I don't think people realize how damaging you knew, it is. You knew this wasn't going to be like a two-week nope. thing. It's, nope. it, it's just the Mets, they're medical. I, I don't know. They just can't make diagnosis is correct. I mean, I, you know, there's no other way to put it. Um, so, you know, they had a nice little lead in the division and, and it's a weak division. I mean, it reminds me so much of 73 and they just can't uh, get over that hump. This was a year where the Mets would have been dangerous in the postseason. I mean, they had, I mean, DeGrom wasn't going to lose. And, you know, the other pitchers were do, doing well. Um, and they were probably going to get Syndergaard back, whether or not he could be a starter or not, or a middle reliever, give, or, give them a couple of innings. They were going to be dangerous in the postseason. And, you know, they, they could have stolen one this year. I mean, baseball, you know, the National League, you know, the Giants, I mean, they're going to win 105 games, but I don't know how. Right. Um, the Dodgers are very, very, very good. I, I think they're the team that's going to win the World Series. But very good. You know, they're not perfect either. And, and, and the, the Mets, I, I think they would have given them a handful in a postseason series. I agree. So it's just unfortunate, uh, you know, what happened. Um, but as they say, that's baseball. One thing that, and and if anybody is interested in, in seeing the other side of this, I think it's it's really, you know, I think it'd be interesting as we get to the end of the baseball season here, two sides of glory, the Red Sox perspective. Nobody's done that from what I know before, before yeah. you. And some of those guys, it took a long time for them to talk. The late Bill Buckner had a horrible existence after. But the guy in the documentary that we haven't heard from is Calvin Schiraldi. And Calvin Schiraldi, like every other closer that has blown, I mean, Go back to the 2011 World Series, and when the Cardinals beat Texas, they had a closer that blew it. Dennis Eckersley blew a World Series. Armando Benitez blew a World Series. Look, now, granted, not to, you know all of them. Well, the Texas one, yes, that was that would have won the championship. But Chiraldi, as much as not even as much as Buckner, but he was right there, like a one B, really yeah. didn't recover. And he was a big time prospect. I don't think people realize that in the Mets organization. He was the centerpiece of that Ojeda trade. He had an outstanding season where he gave up nothing when he came up. He was a dynamic reliever. And after that season, he just fizzled out. And I sensed, at least from the few 30-second clips, and I think you talked to him and met him, there's a certain amount of bitterness towards the Mets and anger 
and maybe frustration of how the his former team looked at him. Um, talk about that because I think he's a very interesting sidebar of the other side. Well, sure, Mike. I mean, I I dedicated a chapter in Two Sides of Glory, the 1986 Boston Red Sox, in their own words, to Calvin. I met with them at his home in Austin, Texas, and I think if there's any bitterness towards the Mets, it's from what he's heard that that he was soft, you know, that he didn't have the makeup like his Texas teammate, Roger Clemens, who, you know, was basically a hired assassin. You know, he, I mean, Clemens told me that, you know, if you're not pitching inside, you're not competing. Um, so Chiraldi, some scouts believed he had even more talent than Clemens, natural ability, but that he was soft, uh, according to the Mets. And um, so when they faced him in the World Series, they, this is what they thought. But, you know, Chiraldi up until that sixth game, he was fine. I mean, people forget, you know, he clo- closed out game, game one, a one nothing game. Um, he, he had a couple of hiccups in the postseason. But, um, I mean, I was in Boston during the 86 season um, for most of the summer. And he came out of nowhere. I mean, they brought him up in my minor leagues at the all-star break because Bob Stanley got, got injured. And he lit for almost as much as Clemens was the talk of Boston in the first half of the season when he was 14 and 0. Calvin Chiraldi was the talk of Boston in the second half. He yep. had an ERA of like 1.4. And he, and he was a typical modern day reliever. Yeah. Struck out a ton of guys, walks for a little high, even the following year where you know, his second year in Boston. I mean, it really looks like to me, he got typecasted of failure and then yeah. tried to become a starter, got bounced around. He's a guy that won 17 games in the Mets minor league system. I believe he was pitcher of the year or minor league player of the year, yeah. not chop liver. And no. there was a, there was a sense. I mean, the interesting story that I had heard on Brett Boone's podcast from Kevin Mitchell was how he had told Kevin how he'd pitch him, which is interesting. And I agree with Charlie. When would you ever think that that innocuous conversation would come back to bite you? Here's the lesson for all you players out there. Never tell your teammates how you'd pitch them. You never know when they're going to be on the other side. Never. There you go. Absolutely. So yeah, Mitch, you know, in Kings of Queens, he tells that story and, and so he was looking slider. Um, so um yeah, I mean, it, there, there's so many side stories to that series. And yeah, that's why I've now written basically four books about it. Um, it's a crazy it, season. I mean, the Angels and Donnie Moore and uh, tragically what happened there, how good the Astros were. And now with all the scandal around their 2017 championship, that was probably the best Astros team you could argue, maybe 98. But, you know, from a standpoint, that team came about as close to winning a championship so many subplots, such an interesting time. And I think the 80s, you know, is an interesting baseball decade that gets lost a little bit. Because the 70s as these great Orioles and Pirates teams, the 86 Mets, and then you kind of have a champion every year for a while. Uh, and then you get to the 90s and all the craziness with records and steroids and, and so on. I sometimes feel the 80s. And, and again, the reason I'm a baseball fan is because of the 86 Mets. I'm not, my dad was a Mets fan. I was a young kid, not totally into sports. The 86 Mets, people have no idea how that captured the city. And, and, and am I a front runner? Well, you're nine years old. What do you know? 
Um, that there was just so much about that excitement that as a kid, you say, I, I need more of this. I need more of this. And this fan base, I think you would agree, Eric, having gone around, it is a tr- it's a frustrating fan base because there's a toxic nature to some of it. And there's some real toxic fans, but it is a great fan base really is. Even though it doesn't always show up hundred percent of the time at the ballpark, it's out there. They travel with the team. Um, I really think the Red Sox analogy is, is not totally perfect because Boston is a small town, as you know, living there. But for as big of a town we are in New York, the Mets are about as small town of a type of fan base, I think, as you get. Would you agree? Because you have experience living up there up north. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a boisterous fan base when they're good. Um, you know, it goes back to their roots from Brooklyn, you know, I think more than anything. I, I know that they're a morph between the Giants and the Dodgers, but I, I really believe the Mets fans at their core are those crazy old Brooklyn Dodger fans. And, um, and you put a winner, you know, their Mets fans are just kind of hanging in the weeds and, um, you know, they put a good pro product on the field. They'll draw 3 million fans and, and they're a crazy boisterous fan base. And they're a very intelligent fan, fan base that appreciates their history. I mean, in what organization could George Theodore or Don yep. Hahn, um, Mackie you know, Sasser, yeah, Mackie Sasser, Duffy yeah. Dyer, you know, sure. these guys 40, 50 years later, um, are still beloved names in Mets history. And it's just, um, you know, the, the Mets players are just so precious to their fans. And I don't think there's a fan base that appreciates their history, the good, bad, and the ugly, more than Mets fans. So what's next for you? You're going to be at Cheers this week. Will yeah. you see Norm? Yeah. Will you see Woody Harrelson? Will you see Cliff Clavin? Will, you know, I Sam don't... Malone come out of retirement? You're going to be at Cheers. I've been to Cheers. I'll tell everyone a funny story. The last time I was at Cheers, Mets were playing the Red Sox in Boston 06. I was watching at, from the Cheers bar. John Lester pitched for the Red Sox. First game of that series, and then I wound up going to the Pedro game that he came back and got clobbered. I still remember that. I will say one thing about Red Sox fans. They were very polite to opposition. It was easy when it was 9 nothing, but they were very polite. Always been, I always say this, always jealous of Boston because everybody roots for one team. Here we all fight amongst each other. I've always been jealous, and I know people think that's crazy. I've been jealous of that town from a sports perspective because we're all together. Here I feel I got to fight my brother, my sister, and I got to fight internally the people that are on my side. <laughs> so, But you're going to be at Cheers. You have this great book about the Red Sox. Anything you want to tease coming up other than the Red Sox? Are we going to see more no. Mets content from you? Are you getting anything in the hopper? Yeah, so real, real quick, it's Cheers uh, this Tuesday. Uh, so in two days from now, um, it'll be the book signing will be from four to seven p.m. Uh, during happy hour while the Mets are playing at Fenway. And wow. um, if you're in Boston, you know your viewers come out and stop by. You don't even have to buy buy a book; just stop by and say hi. Eric's a gentleman. He's always good. I mean, Davy Johnson book, Mookie book. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Let's do this again. We'll be on the lookout for your next Mets content. And I know there's tons of cutting room floor stuff. Maybe Nick Davis will put together an after the show type of thing. We'll see more of you. So I hope so, Mike. All right. Be well, Eric. Thank you. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. All right, buddy. Hey, thank you so much. Bye-bye. And that's Eric Sherman.
by Eric Sherman on Twitter. You can check him out. Eric Sherman Baseball, a lot of good stuff. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll wrap up. I'm going to tease a little announcement. We may have a little announcement for the Talking Mets podcast coming up. We'll be back with that and more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. Great stuff. I really always enjoy talking to Eric Sherman. And like I said, this is the kind of stuff that really makes for good radio, the storytelling. And I know what I know what everyone says, Mike, you're anti-narrative. Why would you want to like, you know, promote storytelling? Because storytelling can be done responsibly. You know, you don't have to get every number right. Not every fact has to be perfect. The the foundation of the story and the point being true is what it's all about. And I think we we had some interesting things to talk about. I really think the whole concept of Mookie Wilson, how Mookie Wilson would be viewed by today's game, to me is fascinating. How the whole team would be viewed by today's game would be fascinating. Because there's a lot of things analytically that don't match up. Look at the numbers of the bullpen. Guys don't strike a lot of people out. Even Jesse Roscoe. I mean, he was the, probably the most strikeout pitcher in the whole bullpen. Starting rotation wasn't big strikeout guys by that standard. Now, maybe by the standard of that era and what have you. But uh, good stuff with Eric Sherman. Interesting stuff. Now, I teased for you, before we wrap up here, I teased for you a big announcement. And I promise you'll hear it. Came to an agreement over the weekend with uh, a company that I believe is going to help this show grow. Now, you're probably saying to yourself, oh, no, you're selling out, Mike. You're selling out. I am not selling out. This is, again, when I say this show remains independent, this show is not going to be affiliated with SNY, New York Post, New York Daily News, Newsday. We're not going to have the Mets pick us up. The point of being unaffiliated is not to, you know, be so niche that you niche yourself out of business but so that you don't have agendas. And I could assure you that whatever I announce in the coming days, and I believe we will have everything finalized before the next show. That's my hope. Won't require you to change anything. Should require you to change any of your Apple podcast, your Amazon music, any of this stuff. Should not. Uh, that, that was a goal. What I do think is it'll allow us more exposure. It'll allow us to potentially bring some revenue into this thing that can make it even better. At the end of the day, anything I do is to make this experience better so that when you spend this hour dedicating your time, and I take that seriously, this is not like a blog post. Like I say, you could click in, click out. Oops, that stunk. I I wasted 37 seconds of my life. No, you're dedicating an hour, whether it be on a treadmill, on a train going somewhere, in the car, sitting at home, at the beach, whatever. You're dedicating your time away from somebody in your family, away from doing something else. And I take that seriously. And every time I hang up and say goodbye and I think back, I'm always saying, what could I have done better? This stinks, that stinks. I'm the biggest critic you're ever going to get on this show. I promise you that. I never think I do a great show. 
So when I get emails from you at Mike Silva at Mike Mike Silva at talkingmitspodcast.com, no G, I really am humbled by it because I say, okay, it is hitting the mark. I always wanted to do something that I myself would enjoy listening to. And believe it or not, when I listen back for feedback, because I try to listen to myself, even though it's hard, if I'm enjoying it, I'm engrossed in it, and I'm in the car, and I'm saying, wow, 45 minutes just went by like that, I'm like, well, if that's me, and I'm the hardest critic, then I think I'm hitting the spot for other people. So stay tuned. The announcement will probably come as a standalone audio file at some point, giving you kind of an idea of what we're going to do here. And I promise it's going to be good, and it's only a good thing, and for the there will be very little change to your experience here. It's not like all of a sudden you're going to get the corporate Tom Brokaw, Mike Silva, well, hi, how are you? Uh, we're no longer going to address this issue, that issue. No, that's not what's going to happen. I promise you on that. It's uh, is more cosmetic than anything, but um, I think there's going to be a component of exposure that I think will be really big, and hopefully you agree, and hopefully you enjoy it, and I'd love to hear from you, Mike Silvat. Talkingmitspodcast.com, no G. So anyway, that's all I can give you for now. Stay tuned for more. You have the feed. Wherever you get your podcast, you'll be able to hear the announcement. Stick around. There'll be more to come. Of course, I want to thank Eric Sherman. Uh, Eric Sherman Baseball is the website. Check out his book, Mookie Wilson, Davey Johnson, 86 Mets, and the Boston Red Sox. Go to the ericshermanbaseball.com. Great author. Great friend of the show. You won't uh, regret it. Great stuff. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, now Amazon Music, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast pretty soon. Stay tuned for our announcement. Till then, take care, everybody.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.